Our text today comes from the rest of Matthew chapter 18. The lectionary readings have caught up with our study through Matthew's gospel. So we'll pick up where the gospel reading ended. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him into the prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of our savior. I pray and I ask you today that you would enable me to articulate these things clearly, fill me with your spirit that I might deliver these things without error, without distraction, and that we would all be able to receive them and obey them. So Father, guide us by your spirit into truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If a Japanese executive ever presents his business card to you, it would likely be offensive to him if you were to grab it, cram it in your pocket, or write on it in front of him, or fold it and put it in your wallet. It would likely be offensive. In Japan, exchanging business cards is a highly ritualized custom. When someone gives or receives a business card, it's customary to receive it with both hands as a sign of respect. You're, the respect you show the business card is the respect you show the man who gives it to you. So it's customary to receive it with both hands. The recipient takes a moment to read it, acknowledge it before carefully storing it in a safe place. Now, you wouldn't know that unless somebody had told you that that's how Japanese deal with business cards. We don't think of it that way. If the guy at the local transmission shop gives you his business card and you want to write another phone number on the back of it and cram it in your, in your pocket, he doesn't think anything about it. That's what you do with business cards. And if you were to stand there and venerate it, uh, he would think you were weird and want you to get out of his transmission shop if you acted like that. But if you're planning to host a Japanese VIP to your company, that's the kind of thing that you would want to know. You would want to know this is what he considers to be a sign of respect. I've read that in Russia, it's common to be offered a drink wherever you go, uh, at business meetings, at social gatherings, at meals. But if someone offers you a drink, it's considered to be polite if you decline it the first time as a sign of modesty and respect. Would you like a drink? Oh, no, 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 I'm fine. Seriously, do you want a drink? No, 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 I'm, I'm fine. After you decline it once or twice, then you may accept 
the drink. If you accept it on the first offer, you might be viewed as arrogant or entitled. Who do you think you are coming in here entitled to my drinks? Now, in some cultures, you gotta know where you are because in some cultures, you'll get offered a drink once and if you say no, well, you're just gonna be thirsty because they're not offering again. They're not coming back around. Table manners vary widely throughout the world. In, the, uh, in some Middle Eastern countries, you're expected to use no utensils. You're expected to use only your hands, your bare hands to eat. But in most European countries, you are expected to always use a knife and a fork. Even if you have a sandwich, you cut it up and eat it with a knife and a fork. It would be offensive and weird to do it otherwise. So it's so fascinating to me how different manners and customs develop over time and how a thing that's completely normal in one part of the world is weird or disgusting or offensive in a different part of the world. Like how in Chicago, only a child would put ketchup on a hot dog. You'll get made fun of if you put ketchup on a hot dog in Chicago. And how in Eastern Carolina, tomato sauce is blasphemous on, on barbecue. You don't put uh, tomato sauce in Eastern Carolina barbecue. And more importantly than these things, however, some of these differences are delightful and funny and amusing. But it's more important that we have, uh, that, that we acknowledge that we all have this built-in cultural, regional, familial expectation for how it comes to, when it comes to how we live together, how we communicate, and how we deal with differences. We all come from very different backgrounds and family ways of doing life. And one of the challenges of pulling people together in the church who are coming from a myriad of backgrounds and traditions, even in the same country, is that we're bringing together people who have very different expectations when it comes to how we're going to address our differences and how we're going to deal with those differences. We are called to function with grace and patience whenever there is tension between our customs. We're called to exercise discernment and know when something really is a big deal, when something really is important and worth getting right, foundational principles, and when it's just really not that big of a deal, what you put on your hot dog, for example. And in doing this faithfully over time as we learn how to live together and to forbear with each other, doing this faithfully, we build something new. We produce something new out of that, a Christian culture that is grounded in God's law, that is fueled by a desire to glorify the name of Jesus, and a way of life that flows out of our obedience to God and our deep affection for each other. Paul gives this exhortation to the Corinthian church. In fact, he says, when he says this, he says this to a church that is made up of people who are coming from all over the ancient world. You've got Greeks and you've got Romans and you've got idolaters and people influenced by the Greek philosophers. You've got Jews from the synagogue, both Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots, and all these various people coming together into this church. And to them, he says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and there be no divisions among you, but you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Coming together in the church, we're producing, we're creating a new culture. We're creating a new Christian society within the church. And we're putting away the idolatrous, the sinful, the wicked, the Adamic habits that we learned outside of the church. In, in part, put away the 
the vengeance seeking, put away the warring and the feuding tendencies that you learn in your pagan cultures and come together in the body of Christ. So in order for us to get to this place that Paul is exhorting the Corinthian church to get to, one of the critical areas we must first agree on is how we're going to address our differences and most importantly, how we're going to deal with sin. Sin is inevitable. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to offend each other. And we're coming together as a people who have been trained our whole lives to respond to offenses a particular way. You don't have to be from a different country or you don't have to be from a different state to have inherited an odd way of dealing with problems. This varies from family to family. You learn how to deal with problems from your family. So coming into the church, we bring in, we track in these assumptions and these expectations and these tendencies. For example, some families like to outwardly pretend that there's never a problem. There's never a sin. There's never an issue. And though sin does happen and offenses do happen, they swallow the resentment. They swallow the anger and go on acting outwardly as if everything is normal but may, in fact, harbor bitterness inwardly. And eventually that will come out in some way or another, but they repress and shove it down and act like nothing's wrong uh, until, until they can no longer do that. Some others like to avoid the group or the person that offended them and act like they don't exist. They, they are offended and then they cut themselves off from all communication. They shut down socially or they pull away Entirely, that's another way of handling difficult things. Some deal with their offenses or their insults by talking about it to everyone except the one who harmed them. They go into character assassination mode. They poison the well every time that person's name is mentioned. Others are very easily offended. They're perpetually offended by everything all the time. They are hypersensitive to everyone else's behavior. They think everything is about them all the time. And, and they're quick, quick to take exception, quick to jump on any perceived insult. They're easily upset. Some folks have trained themselves to quickly escalate even the slightest offense into a verbal or physical conflict. I think some people are addicted to cortisol. Some people are addicted to like a rush of, of adrenaline or whatever comes when you have conflict because they're always in conflict and they can turn a small thing into a big thing with no trouble. They're masters at that. They're experts at that. And there are maybe other ways. There may be other approaches that are a combination of of any of these as well. But, but none of these approaches, none of the ways that we've sinfully learned how to deal with problems and conflict, none of these are good examples of ways that we deal with offenses in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus. And it's so important that we have a common approach to, uh, to handling offenses that Jesus gave his apostles instructions. In fact, he gave them a procedure to follow. He didn't leave them to figure this out in their own time. He didn't let them, you know what, just base this on your family assumptions or your regional cultures. No, he creates a new family culture. He, he defines for them how he wants them to address sins in the church. And he's delivered this to us through the gospel. That Now we have these house rules in common. I don't care if you learned a different way of dealing with offenses in your house. Jesus gives us a new set 
of house rules. This is how we deal with sin. First, notice Jesus says this. We're just going to walk through this little uh, section of teaching from the Lord Jesus, and then we're going to look at the parable at the very end with our last couple of minutes. Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. So first of all, first word that stands out is brother. This is how we handle offenses with a brother. We are in the territory of dealing with sins between Christians, Christians who we assume have a common understanding of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of repentance, of restoration, of peace and fellowship, that that's our common goal, that we really want more than anything. We don't want tension. We don't want conflict. We don't want to start a feud. We want peace and fellowship. And we understand that we're both sinners, that we have that base definition, that we we both have a problem of sin here, and we're both very prone to sin, and we're prone to see things sinfully. So these are, these are offenses with brothers. You can't control and you can't predict the responses of unbelievers. Now, you, you do your best to pursue them. You, you pursue them in love the same way. You follow some of the same principles, but there comes a point where repentance is necessary. And with an unbeliever, you may not ever get that. In fact, it's very unlikely, unless they are converted, unless they believe the Lord Jesus, that you're ever going to get repentance out of an unbeliever. And later Jesus says, if you're not making any headway, you tell it to the church. Well, how am I supposed to take an unbeliever to the church? He's not under the church's authority. He's not in the church's jurisdiction. What's the church going to do with an unbeliever? So in many ways, conflict with an unbeliever is more difficult because we are the ones there who have to model long-suffering and patience. We have to show what it looks like to absorb shame like the Lord Jesus, to absorb offenses without seeking revenge, leaving the outcome to God, trusting that God will make all things right. So what Jesus is demonstrating here and what he's teaching is on how we deal with offenses with a brother. And it's very important. We're talking about brothers. Who is your brother? Your believing husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, the people who share the faith with you in the Lord Jesus. This is how disciples of Jesus deal with problems together. So first, he says, if your brother sins against you. Second, Jesus says, what I'm about to lay out is a process of what you do when your brother sins against you. Let's highlight that word next, sins. This is not how we handle a difference of an opinion. If, if you like Chevrolet and I like Ford and we tend to bicker about that, we go back and forth, I, you know, I, don't, I don't take that to the elders. I don't escalate that. I don't go to process. We don't call up the presbytery and say, hey, we got a problem here. we got to figure this out. It's not a sin to disagree. It's not a sin to have a difference of, of perspective. Now, disagreements can escalate into sin when parties behave sinfully toward each other, you can hold a different position, but if you're contentious and you're obnoxious and you start to violate the peace of the church, then we have something to deal with. Then we have sins to deal with. But, but how much better is it just to learn how to disagree with sins? You can be wrong about whether you know, a Chevrolet is better than a Ford. You can be wrong about whatever. It, it, it's, it's, it's okay. What Jesus is talking about is sin is in view. And sin is not a violation of some secondary, unwritten, personal standard. This is very important for us all to realize that sin is not everything I don't like. Right? Everything I don't like is not 
a sin. Everything I don't prefer is not a sin. Sin is a transgression of God's law. And so, unless we can define from God's word precisely how someone has sinned against us, we can drop the process. So let's say we're wrestling with something and we're offended over something they said or something they did. And then, and then we go to Matthew 18 and says, we, we begin here, moreover, if your brother, okay, yeah, it was a brother, moreover, if your brother sins against you. Well, did he sin? Did he clearly violate a prohibition of God's law? Did he clearly do something God said don't do? Did he fail to do something God says do? Well, if that's not the case, uh, that if we can't define it as sin, then we drop it. We let love and gentleness and kindness cover whatever disagreement we find ourselves in. We work toward agreement and peace. Maybe I can convince you that, that your, your idea doesn't hold water. But we do this in the spirit of brotherly kindness. And we do this in the spirit of affection. And learning how to do this together, uh, we, this requires us always, always to consider the words and actions of our brothers and sisters in the best possible light. Some of you are really good at this, and I admire the way that you, you do this. You are always ready to assume that people are trying their hardest. You're, you're ready to assume that people are doing their best. And so whatever you see and whatever you hear, you, you put the best possible spin on that, and, and you hear it and you see it very charitably, and you're, you're not looking for ways to get offended. You're not asking for asking for trouble. But I'm afraid many of us are prone to do the other thing, which is let our imaginations run wild. You hear something or you see something and say, what do they mean by that? Why do you think they did that? Why did she say that with her standing there? Did, did she mean so? I was, I was there. And we think it's all somehow a conspiracy against us, that it's all meant to offend us or hurt us. And we, we get worked up about it because we think we think everybody else is thinking about us all the time. We think that when they say things, it must be directed to, toward me because I was in the same zip code when that thing was said. But in the fact, nobody's thinking of you all the time. You are thinking of you all the time because you think everything plays into the theater of your brain and, and you, are the, you are the central character in your brain, but not everybody's thinking about you all the time. And it is not all meant to hurt you. It's not all meant to offend you. So most of the time, it really is something that we can just let love cover. And Peter, he tells us, the Peter who's walked with Jesus through all of this gospel, he's, he, when we go, I love that um, Peter Jones is preaching through 1 Peter because you see so many of Peter's applications of what he's learning from Jesus here. Peter tells us in his first epistle, he says, above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. So in the, in the midst of being offended or feeling as if someone has wronged us, we check ourselves and we be sure that we're work, if, if we're getting worked up over something that's really sin, we're talking about sin, there must have been some clear violation of God's word. And if not, we just, just let love cover it. Go on. Uh, well, this is important because next, if we are sinned against in a significant way that we can't simply forget about it, we can't let love cover it, then Jesus says, you must tell him his fault. You can't harbor it. You can't be bitter over it. You can't tell someone else his fault. Uh, you can't bury it. You can't paper over it. You can't put it on your list to bring out sometime down the road. The next time something happens, you say, oh, by the way, remember when you did 
did this. No, you must approach the offender with his sin. Oh, this, this also means you, you don't go to an elder and say, oh, or, or go to a deacon or, or somebody, a church officer and say, oh, you should look into that guy over there. Or you should go check that. Or I heard this or I saw that. You, you should go check into that. And because our answer is, well, maybe you should go check into that. <laughs> maybe you should go see what's going on there. Uh, go explore that. You approach the offender. If you see something wrong, you approach the offender with his sin. This requires courage. This requires prayer and humility because you got to recognize your own sin even in confronting another person on theirs. Remember what Jesus said about the beam and the speck back in chapter 7. And we first confess our own sins knowing our own uh, frailty and knowing our own frame. But once we've done that and squared that away, this is the most loving thing to do for the one in sin. No genuine Christian, no follower of the Lord Jesus wants to just hang out ignorantly in error. No one wants to, to be sinning in ignorance. It is loving for us to go and to tell our brother his fault. I don't want to have offended you. I don't want to have hurt you and not know about it. I don't want to have sinned against you and just be blissfully unaware of it. If I've sinned against you, I want to know about it. So it's loving for you to say, you, you sinned against me. Well, how do we make this right? Let's, let's get to work on it. So you tell him his fault. Next, this process is one that begins in private. Jesus commands us to tell him his fault between you and him alone. You don't tell everybody else except the one who has offended you. If you've been here several years, you've heard me say this many times, but a good definition of gossip is talking about something to someone who is neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. Gossip defined, a definition of it is talking about a problem to someone who's neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. Why are you complaining to this person? Why are you talking to this person about this thing? That's tail bearing. Uh, deal with it with between you and him alone, and this keeps private sins private. And this whole process that Jesus gives us keeps that principle that we're only involving people who are either part of the problem or part of the solution. The goal is to protect everyone's reputations. The, the accused, your reputation, uphold the name of Jesus, uphold the reputation of the church. Uh, Proverbs 25 says this, listen, debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. How could my reputation be ruined if I go around talking about somebody else before talking to them? Uh, how do, if I let this, well, it, it gives the perception that nobody in the church can get along. It gives this perception that the church is always at war, that the church is always fighting each other. And so, so offenses between brothers really can get out of hand quickly and bring shame to the whole church if we don't do what Jesus says. These things don't need to be aired out on the internet or aired out in the homeschool community or through other, through other channels. Private sins are confessed privately. They're dealt with privately. If other people is involved, it, it's, if, the, if other people are involved, it's when it's only necessary. But all along the way, you keep it as contained as possible. Now I want to stop and I want to put a footnote here and come back to this. I'll, I'll put a little star and we'll come back and cover this. What Jesus is talking about here is ordinary personal offenses, sins between brothers who are generally equals. Uh, before I'm done, I want to talk about a couple of situations that are not 
simply personal offenses, but situations where other authorities need to be involved more quickly. But for now, we're in this common territory of how we deal with offenses between brothers, the kind of, kind of things we deal with frequently. Now, if you go to your brother, Jesus says, you go and tell him his sin between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Well, anytime that the offender is, is ready to confess his sin, do whatever it takes to, to, to make things right, to restore the relationship, including restitution if that's necessary, as, as soon as that, that comes together, the process is complete. But if this conversation is received poorly or if the counsel is ignored, then help must be obtained. You appeal to the wisdom of others by taking one or two more. Now, here's what happens when you talk to somebody else and you say, I'm really having a problem over here and I need your help. And you say, this brother and I are in conflict and we're not making progress on it. Will you help me come and, and answer this deal? So you talk to another brother and he walks you through it and he says, what's going on here? And you say, well, he did X and then he might say, your, your second friend might say, that's not, what are you talking about? That's not a sin. That's not a sin to say that. It's not a sin to think that. It's not a sin. You may disagree with him, but it's not, the Lord doesn't prohibit that. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're getting some help on your own perspective. You're getting some help on your own viewing of, of the situation. Maybe they'll help you see your fault or where you have sinned. Maybe you're the one in the wrong. Maybe you're taking offense over something that's not worth taking offense over. Maybe you're misinterpreting the Bible and calling something sin that isn't. Well, the other, the other eventuality, another possibility is that this friend would say, oh yeah, actually, I think, I think you're in the right if what you've said is true, but we do need to talk to the other brother and see if, if your account is correct. And... And, and if that is, is that a case, the, the case they agree with you and they see that the other brother needs to repent. But still, this process is kept as small as possible for as long as possible. Hopefully here, in this step, they confess their sin, they take responsibility and they work to repair the relationship, whatever, whatever it takes. The goal here in bringing one or two others is to bring wisdom and counsel and understanding to bring more light to the conversation. Wise men want counsel. Wise men uh, know that in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Wise men want to be corrected when they're in the wrong and when they're sinning. Wise men really want to know if they've offended someone or injured someone because they want to make it right. They really want to do what God says. That's what a wise man does. The fool is not interested in any of that. The fool leans on his own understanding. The fool surrounds himself with counselors who tell him exactly what he wants to hear. The fool puts up defenses and barriers and closes his ears to wisdom. He can't be corrected. Anytime correction comes, he brings out excuses or he brings up his defenses or he starts making threats or he takes his ball and goes home. That's what the fool does. And so what's gonna come out of this conversation is you're gonna find out, are we dealing with a wise person or are we dealing with a fool? The next thing Jesus says to do is that if you and one or two others are convinced that the offender is in fact in sin and is not repenting, then, you know, if no progress has been made, then Jesus says you tell it to the church. You involve the authority of the church. You appeal to the greater community for their help in restoration, for their ability to plead for repentance, for their authority and judgment if there's not repentance. You're saying, this is really too big for me to handle on my own. This is bigger than me and my friends can handle. We need the church. And here we're trying to determine, 
now, is this person going to keep their vows to pursue the peace and purity of the church? Or are they a covenant breaker? Are you dealing with a person who really doesn't care about the church, who really doesn't care about the Lord Jesus, who doesn't care about his brothers and sisters? He's just bent on doing what he wants to do. And if that's the case, Jesus says, if the offender never makes any movement toward repentance or expresses no willingness to restore the peace, then Jesus says, let him be to you as a heathen. Put him out of the community so that he'll recognize this is where your sins are taking you. And he'll understand that you can't act like an unrepentant heathen and still pretend to be a Christian. You can't hold two identities. You can't have a foot in one community and in the other. This, this forces him to deal with the reality. And even this, even this effort is, is an is a, is a attempt at restoration and peace. This action is taken with the prayer that the offender will be restored. And that's what we're looking for the whole way, the whole way through this. We're looking for restoration. We're not looking to try to ruin somebody or flex our muscles over somebody. Our aim is to restore the peace that is broken from beginning to end. We don't shrink back from using the very real authority that Jesus has given his church. He says, again, what he said earlier, he repeats here, Jesus says, assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So when Jesus says, put them outside of the church and treat them like a heathen, how, how, do, you treat, how do you treat an unbeliever? How do, you, uh, how, do you, how do you view them? Well, you share the gospel with them. You don't treat them like a Christian. They aren't. You're very clear about that. There's no fantasy there. You don't uh, make them comfortable in their lack of repentance. You don't pretend like they're maybe a Christian. No, but we still love them and we pursue their restoration. This whole process really is a challenge but it doesn't come without some wonderful promises that if we do this the right way, Jesus says we gain a brother. If they receive the correction and repent, we have gained a brother. Conflict in the body of Christ is an opportunity for us to end up at a better place than when we started. And that's the goal, to be better off in the end than where we started. And if necessary, also, this whole process is, is necessary to remove threats to the peace and safety and the purity of the body. That's why Jesus talks about this radical amputation just a few verses above. It's all in the same context. He says, if a hand or a foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. And here, if somebody doesn't repent, you got to cut them off and cast them from you. That is, the, that is the context of this whole conversation. Remember also where Jesus started. Jesus started talking about the little ones, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He sets a child in the midst of them. And he talks about his, his little ones, his sheep. Don't do anything that causes them to stumble. Don't sin against them. Don't harm them in any way. Now, keeping that in mind, that, that framing of this whole conversation, as I said, this is the Lord's prescription for common everyday offenses, for sins, for differences between brothers. This is how we handle it. But there are some situations that don't involve these these offenses between brothers. There are some sins so heinous and high-handed, and not to mention sins, sins that are illegal, righteously illegal. There are things that, that are, are still rightly judged by our society as being illegal and punishable by law. Sins that are not committed between equals, between brothers, but where a stronger person is actually taking advantage of a weaker person. In, in those cases, where does this instruction fit? For example, if, a, if an abused child 
has, has an accusation against somebody who has mistreated them in some horrific way, does that abused child have to, well, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone? Should a, should a child have to do that? Should a child have to privately confront their abuser? If, if Another example, if you see a brother, you're driving down the street and you see a brother from the church holding up a bank. He's got a gun and the guys behind the counter sticking their hands up and he's, he's robbing the bank. Do you have to first publicly, I'm sorry, first privately confront him before calling the police on him and say, I know who that guy is, I know what he's doing, and you need to get down here right away. Do you have to have a private conversation with him before you call the cops? Or let's say an even crazier scenario, let's say that we all learn that someone in the church is living in an openly, publicly, scandalous, adulterous, incestuous relationship. What about that? Do we have to start that process with this private meeting. Well, we know, what all, we, we know what happens in that third case because Paul had to deal with a man like that in Corinth. And Paul doesn't say to the church in Corinth, he says, well, there's a process to follow and we have to follow that process. <laughs> That's not what Paul says. He says, the next time you have church, put that man outside of the church and deliver him over to Satan. Put him out of the church. What that tells me is, is that there are certain situations that accelerate this process, especially if you're dealing with public, heinous, illegal type sins, things that God has put even under the jurisdiction of the state. If we're talking about something illegal, we're not talking about a personal offense against, uh, between brothers. And especially if we're talking about crimes involving children, that's not a private matter and we don't cover that up, and we don't sweep that under the rug. And I bring this up because Matthew 18, I believe, has been misapplied and misappropriated in situations like that, and I don't, I don't want ever anybody to think, oh yeah, if, uh, if there's this kind of situation, oh, we've gotta follow Matthew 18, because of Paul's example, there are some situations that accelerate. No, we have to deal with this swiftly and judiciously and immediately. Uh, and, and that's how Jesus begins the whole conversation in Matthew 18, right? He talks about this swift and decisive judgment upon sins against children. He, he talks about if, you're, uh, you know, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you're drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus doesn't have any patience with that, that uh, species of, of sin. Now, now, thankfully... We don't have to deal with public crimes like that. That's very, very rare for us to ever have to deal with that. More often, we have to deal with these personal sins between brothers. Dealing with these small things well prepares us to deal with bigger things. It strengthens our muscles to deal with the bigger things. So back to the text. When Jesus is done saying these things, Peter speaks up. Now, Peter gets a lot of heat from preachers and commentators, and I've I've taken a few sideways jabs at Peter myself, I have to confess. But in situations like this, Peter's just saying what we're all thinking. Honestly, we have to be thankful for him because he's saying, he asked the questions that we would ask in the very same situation. So Jesus just talked about this process of restoration, this process of forgiveness. And Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? I mean, that's a lot, right? That's very gracious. If you sin against me and I forgive you, you sin against me and I forgive you. I mean, if I do that seven times, that's a lot of forgiveness. And after the seventh time, then I'm done with you, right? I'm, I'm giving up on you. 
Because we've all dealt with people who say they're sorry and they mess up and they need us to forgive them again and they sin against us again and then we have to forbear with that and they mess up again and we have to forgive them again. And the truth is the closer proximity we are to someone, the more potential there is for offense and sin. I almost never have to forgive anybody in Norway. And I, that never comes up. I never have to forgive anybody in New Zealand. Honestly, we're fine. Me in New Zealand, if I ever meet in New Zealand, we're good. I don't, we're, we're, we're in fellowship. But we have to work through things with people who are close to us. Isn't that odd? And we have more difficulty and more tension, more friction, the closer we are to people. And, and we have to realize this and know that if we're gonna live together in covenant, if we're gonna be close to each other, we need to be ready and prepared to deal with offenses and sins and to answer this. So what about this, Lord? Am I just supposed to give unlimited forgiveness? Is there any end? Is there any cap? Can I, just, can I just cut it off at seven and leave it there? And what does Jesus say in verse 22? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Jesus is not giving us a new, a new number there for the scorecard. He's not saying, okay, keep track of it. And then when you get to 70 times seven, then you're done. In Jesus's words here, there's an echo of the Jubilee year. The, the forgiveness brought by Jesus is the Jubilee of Jubilees. Debts are forgiven, slaves are released. There's no limit to the forgiveness, no top or bottom to the kind of sins that are forgiven and the kind of people who are forgiven in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. If there were a limit to the Father's forgiveness, then Peter would be out I would be out, you would, you would be out. So this forgiveness that we have been so freely given is the very same forgiveness that we are required to, to demonstrate toward each other. When Peter asks this question, he sees himself in the position of the one who is sinned against, right? That's what he says. He says, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter is in the position of the dispenser of mercy and grace. He's in a position of power against someone who has wronged him. But Jesus flips this around in the parable that he tells. Jesus tells this story about this servant who owes a ridiculous amount of money to a king. So he, this servant owes 10,000 talents. And this servant is forgiven that amount and he turns around and he abuses someone else who owes him 100 denarii and demands payment. How much money are we talking about here? Just trying to translate this into modern terms. A denarii is a day's wage for a common laborer. So in today's uh, understanding, if minimum wage is seven and a quarter, a day's labor is, is a denarii. It's about, uh, denarii would be about $58 uh, given inflation and all other factors. A denarii is about $58. A hundred denarii then is $5,800, a lot of money. A how much is a talent though? This first servant, he owed 10,000 talents. A talent is 6,000 denarii, 6,000 days of, of labor for one talent. And that, addition, that, that initial debt was 10,000 talents. I, again, I did the math, that's $3.48 billion. That's 60 million working days wage. Now, now let's, let's put this together with, that, with, that, with those numbers. Let's walk through the story again. A king wants to settle his accounts. There's a servant who owes him 
10,000 talents, $3.48 billion. Jesus comes up with an amount that's obviously, obviously so big and so amazing, nobody's ever gonna pay off that. How did you even rack up that debt to begin with? That is more money than all of us have ever owed at any point in our life together. It's way more than that. There's no way that anybody is ever gonna pay a debt of 10,000 talents, billions of dollars. It's an unbelievably crushing load of debt. So the king finds out that this man owes him this money. He says, you know what? I'm gonna sell you into slavery. I'm gonna liquidate all of your property. I'm gonna sell that. I'm gonna sell your wife and your kids into slavery. I'm gonna get whatever I can out of you, and that's gonna go toward the relief of the debt, which is not even gonna be a drop in the bucket. And the servant falls down and he cries out for mercy and the king forgives that debt. The the, the servant says, I'm gonna pay it, I promise I'm gonna pay it. And the king says, I forgive you. He wipes it off the books. He doesn't owe it. Can you imagine going from that debt to being even, not even in the black, you're just even. And and, uh, he's forgiven. And that same servant who's just been forgiven that undescribable amount of money. That same servant goes out and finds one of his co-workers who owes him about $6,000, $5,800. It's a lot of money, but it's not, it's not what he was owing. And so this other co-worker owes him $5,800. He lays hands on him, Jesus in the story. He says he puts his hands around his throat and he says, you pay me what you owe me. And that second debtor begs for mercy but the man who has just been forgiven his debt has his debtor thrown in prison. And when the king finds out about it, he's furious. The master, after he called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers that he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Father in heaven, forgive us exactly the way we forgive everybody else. That's a, that's a, that's a strong prayer. What are we praying there? Jesus followed that up by saying, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will not forgive your trespasses. So in other words, if you really have an understanding of what you have been forgiven of and the nature of the judgment you deserve for what you have been forgiven of and what you deserve for your sins, if we have any, any idea of what we have been forgiven of, we would be freely gracious and patient and long-suffering, willing to forgive 70 times seven, no limit, the full jubilee of forgiveness. If you don't have a sense of your own sin and the depth of God's mercy to you, you're gonna have a very thin, a very anemic idea of your responsibility to forgive other people. Gracelessness is an indication that you aren't living in God's mercies yourself. If you don't confess your sins, if you don't believe that God forgives, you don't trust in the Lord Jesus, you don't understand his work on the cross on your behalf, what do we call that? We call that lost. You're lost. This is why Jesus has these strong words. You're acting like an unbeliever. You're acting like an unforgiven person when you don't forgive, and you will be treated likewise. You might protest and say, you know what, all of this, this forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here is too free, it's too easy, it's too much. 
Shouldn't there be tighter limits, more restrictions? I mean, aren't there people who presume on God's mercies and treat it like a joke? Are there people who sin high-handedly and, and they say, God, I'm sorry, out of the side of their mouths, but who really make a mockery out of repentance and the cross of Christ? Are there people like that? Yeah, yeah, there are. God knows who they are. God knows their heart. They always expose themselves just like the servant in this parable. God will deal with them. No one gets away with anything. It's not our job uh, to uh, make sure they see what's coming to them. Are there people who do that with you, though? Are there people who will presume upon your Christian patience, who will sin against you, and they'll just say, sorry, and they go right back and do it again without any change, without any repentance? Yep, that'll happen. Are you the judge of their heart? Are you the appraiser of the quality of their repentance or the genuineness of their repentance? Well, not entirely. That's why you tell it to the church. You got to get more eyes on the situation. In the multitude of counselors, you can see clearly that the church may have to make a decision on this person. But for us in this day-to-day life with the people around us, our instinct must be to forgive and to forgive and to forgive freely. Do you, do you think God is ever going to judge us for being too merciful, uh, for, for being too, too patient with personal offenses? In that territory, that's what we're talking about, too patient with sins against us, being too long-suffering with people who have offended us. You think God is going to judge us for being too patient in those situations? I, I don't think so. And, 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 and we're being directed to think this way. We forgive this way because We've been forgiven way more than 10,000 talents. Being a Christian means living in and sharing this forgiveness that God has showered us with in Jesus. Being a Christian means taking God's word seriously. It means doing what Jesus says every time there's a personal offense. It means racing toward peace and love and restoration. And when we do this, this creates a unique culture that's not present anywhere else but in the community of the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can produce a community that does this. There are people all over the world trying to create these utopias. It never works. It always falls apart because you don't have God's Holy Spirit bringing us together, uniting us together in the direction and the words of Jesus. These are the manners and the customs of our life together. What Jesus gives us are the house rules of how we deal with our differences. And so we will. We will obey by God's Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercies toward us in Jesus. We thank you for the free and full forgiveness we have received by trusting in him. So give us your spirit that we might demonstrate this toward each other uh, all the time, that we would love and forgive and forgive and forgive, that we would pursue the correction of wrongs quickly and swiftly and be open to restoration. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.